Have you ever heard a story that is so outlandish there is no way that it can possibly be true? I mean, a, a tale so unbelievable and so far-fetched that it, it must be actually factual. Enter the Brothers Grimm. In the early 1800s, Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm collected the type of stories and tales that I have just alluded to. Stories that depicted the unpredictable and often unforgiving life of a Central European during that time. The brothers were determined to preserve the Germanic oral tradition and used their stories and their tall tales to capture that dying art. And many of these stories have become quite familiar to us. Stories such as Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, Rapunzel, Hansel and Gretel, Cinderella, Beauty and the Beast, and Riding Hood, just to name a few, some of the better known works by the Brothers Grimm. And many of these stories, most of these stories, are actually based on true events and people. Take, for instance, the story of Snow White. Now, when taken on the surface and when we read it as an adult, we're likely to think there is no way that this can be true. I mean, a fair maiden who has seven dwarfs at friend, as friends eats a poisoned apple and is rescued by the tall, dark, and handsome prince. But the story actually has several true elements from real life. The fairy tale is based on the tragic life of Marguerite von Waldeck, a 16th century, 16th century Bavarian noblewoman. Margu Marguerite grew up in Bad Will Dungeon, where her brother used small children to work his copper mine. Severely deformed because of the physical labor mining required, they were despairingly referred to as, you guessed it, dwarfs. The poison apple is also rooted, in fact. An old man would offer tainted fruits to workers and also to children that he suspected were stealing from him. Marguerite's stepmother, despising her, sent the beauty to the Brussels court to get rid of her, and there Prince Philip II of Spain became her Prince Charming. His father, the King of Spain, opposing the romance, dispatched Spanish agents to murder Marguerite. They secretly poisoned her. And in many ways, I think that we sometimes look at God's story that spans all of Scripture as simply a tall tale. We see it as being too good to be true or too outlandish to even be worth considering. I mean, consider a teenage boy defeating a nine-foot nine giant with a rock. Really? A no-name scaredy cat who defeats a massive army with torches and horns and screams. Or a tongue-tied herdsman who walks into the most powerful kingdom on the face of the earth and walks out with an entire nation behind him. But here's the thing. What if all those tales are not really tales at all? What if they are so outlandish, they're so far-fetched that there might be truth to them? What if all those stories are simply a small part of a greater story that God is telling all the way through Scripture? The story of redemption. And if that's the case, then I think it would serve us well to consider these stories with all of the seriousness, with all of the hope, and with all of the wonder that I think they deserve and they demand. And one of these stories that we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks is found tucked away towards the end of the Old Testament 
in the book of Hosea. Now, Hosea is the first book in a series of books known as the Minor Prophets, not because they're any less important than the, than the heavy hitters like Isaiah or Jeremiah, because they're, but because they're shorter in length. But as the old saying goes, it's not the size of the dog in the fight, it's the size of the fight in the dog. When we look at Hosea, there is more there than initially meets the eye. Nowhere more true than in the fascinating and important storyline found in the life and in the ministry of the prophet Hosea. And if you would, turn in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 1, where we will begin our exploration of this unbelievable, almost outlandish story. And in verse 1 of chapter 1, we are given this introduction. The Lord gave this message to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the years when Uzziah Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah were kings of Judah, and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. When the Lord first began speaking to Israel through Hosea, he said to him, but before we go on, let me just look at that verse 1. A bit of a background before we go any further, because I think we really need to understand what state Israel is in before we get to the next part of the story. Now, Israel was in the midst of a time of, of prosperity and a, a time of peace. King Jeroboam was a, a competent political and military leader that had brought success to the kingdom, but he was an awful, awful spiritual leader, as were the other leaders, priests, and officials in Israel. And even though there was prosperity at the beginning of Hosea's ministry, he could literally see it decaying right before his eyes as his ministry continued. I mean, it literally collapsed in the 30 or 40 years or so that his ministry spanned, eventually ending in its defeat, its humiliation, and its exile at the hands of the Assyrians. And we have to ask ourselves, what would cause such a mighty and a prosperous nation to fall in such a short period of time? And I think there's very, one very clear answer that shows up in the book of Isaiah. It's that the Israelites, the people, the nation itself had a love for everything but God. They had a love for all things that were not God. Simply put, Israel was an idolatrous, and as God would describe them, and he describes them all the way through the book of Hosea, they are an adulterous nation. And it's into this situation that Hosea is thrust, but not in some loosely connected way. No, God used Hosea in the most concrete, illustrative way imaginable. Hosea's life literally became the canvas on which God painted the most outlandish, despicable, disappointing, and destructive scene imaginable. Hosea didn't merely speak the words of the prophecy that God gave him. He actually lived it in his life. And continuing on, we've already looked at the first verse of chapter 1 of Hosea, Listen to what we're told in verses 2 and 3. Again, when the Lord first began speaking to Israel through Hosea, he said to him, and catch this, go and marry a prostitute so that some of her children will be conceived in prostitution. This will illustrate how Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. And so Hosea married Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she became pregnant and gave Hosea a son. 
And we read that and we are applied to that with, with the expression of, of, of what? I mean, why would God do such a thing? I mean, first words or milestone words are so important. I'm convinced that yesterday, my daughter Brylan actually said the words dada. Now, Crystal doesn't think so, but I am fully convinced that that's what she said. And those words are so important when a child says mama or dada. Or when you say or someone says I love you to a boyfriend or a girlfriend, which reminds me of the time when I worked up all the nerve and all the courage to tell Crystal that I loved her. It took me enough to just ask her out on a first date, but to work up the courage to say I love you was on a whole other level. And I can, I'll never forget that moment when I looked at her in the eyes and I was so nervous and I told her I love you. And she looked back at me and nothing. She gave me nothing. No, well, that's nice. No, no really a grin or anything, just nothingness. I know I'm not still deeply scarred by it years later, so let's just move on. And back to the story. Back to the importance of first words. And, and consider these first words that God gives Hosea to start his ministry. Go and marry a prostitute. Go and give your heart to someone who will tear it out, stomp all over it, and then hand it to you. Who will betray you, mock you, abandon you, and belittle you. That's the story of Hosea. But on a grander level, it's the story of God and his people. You see, Hosea gives us God's side of the story, God's perspective. And in the story, and in all of Scripture, God has all of the power. God holds all of the cards. He makes all of the rules. And yet in the book of Hosea, Hosea doesn't give us a picture of a God who is, who is a tyrant, forcing us to obey without question. He gives us the image of a God who has been betrayed whose wife has, has left him and will time and time again, and whose children aren't even his own and are quickly destroying themselves. And even when God does step in in this story, it's, it's only from a place of sincere love and devotion for their own good. He uses every ounce of his power and lo to love and to forgive. And that's the key word for this morning, and it's a key theme that we'll be talking about over the next few weeks in this series. In, in Hosea, in his message, in his ministry, in his life, we hear God's broken heart. His longing for his people who were often unfaithful to him and turned their back on him. The only one who was true to them. In fact, Hosea 13.9 captures this very clearly in the best. And he says there, You are about to be destroyed, O Israel. Yes, by me. And then catch these words, Your only helper. God was the only one that was faithful to them. The prophet's message really has two main characteristics. Passionate anger at Israel's sin, and there is plenty of that which we'll talk about over the next few weeks, but there is an equally and often greater passion and tender love for his wife and children, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel. 
God's love and forgiveness for His unfaithful people is demonstrated concretely in Hosea's marriage to an unfaithful woman by default. And from the get-go, this story is set up to show the large amount of forgiveness that will be necessary. And how Hosea treats his wayward wife is exactly how God intends to treat us. But here's the bigger story that I don't want anyone to miss this morning and over the next several weeks. This is exactly how God intends to treat us. It's why forgiveness is such a big deal in the New Testament. Colossians 3.13 says, Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. And then we talked a couple weeks ago about prayer, and specifically the Lord's Prayer. And in Matthew 6.14 and 15, we get these words, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. And forgiveness is such a big deal in the New Testament because it's simply a continuation of the message that is found so explicitly in all of the Old Testament. And here's the message that I want us to hear this morning for us to kind of burn into our hearts it's that God is a God who forgives. I mean, there really is a scarlet thread that runs through the story of Hosea, and that thread which weaves everything together is redemption, forgiveness. The con there's a constant interplay that's happening in Hosea, the, this, this dance between deceit and disappointment and betrayal and rebellion that we will see in this story due to the actions of Gomer, due to the nation of Israel. And then we see that contrasted against God and Hosea's compassion and love and faithfulness and redemption. His, his forgiveness cannot be missed. But Hosea's story is only a smaller part of the greater story of redemption that runs through all of Scripture and culminates in the story of redemption. Christ's death on the cross and the atonement of mankind. And atonement literally is the moment when we become one with God. For forgiveness that we've been talking about here for the last few minutes and we'll continue to talk about in the sermon presupposes atonement. Uh, that there are amends being made. And when we forgive someone or when we are forgiven, there is the automatic assumption that atonement has taken place. That a cost has been paid. And, and don't be fooled, there is great cost in atonement. There is great cost in forgiveness. There is no forgiveness where there is no atonement. I mean, someone has to pay for forgiveness to happen and for amends to be made. It doesn't just magically happen on its own. In fact, as someone has said, atonement is where mercy and love kiss each other. I, I love that. I love the way that it says that. And yet we look at Hosea and we know about God's power and his sovereignty, his authority. And we look at Hosea and we, and we consider this theme of forgiveness and, and where where is God's where is all of God's power? Where, where is all of God's sovereignty and all of his authority in this? And really that is the question. That is the key that unlocks the entire message of Hosea. That in God's boundless, unrelenting, overwhelming love, he is bigger, stronger, 
and more forceful than any sin that we can throw at him. I mean, he doesn't accept our sin, but he also doesn't get overly aggressive with our sin. He, he steps in and he does what we could never do for ourselves. And this is really the key of atonement. He pays the price. He takes the shame and guilt. He takes all of the cost of atonement, making things right, and he puts it on his tab. Think about that and consider that picture, that mental image, that the moments that we have messed up and, and really messed up in life, that Jesus steps in and he looks at the Father and says, go ahead, put, put this on my account. That's what he did in the cross. And God is not distant, God is not detached, but God is very near and very committed to seeing things through. He is abundantly faithful. He loves the loveless. He values the seemingly worthless, so much so that he would pay a ransom that cost him everything. He will never be content to just cut us loose. He will settle for nothing less than love, and he will settle for nothing shorter than forever. And as we'll see over the next few weeks in Hosea, God meets us. God exposes us and God wrestles with us. And then if we will let him, we will humble ourselves. God will also heal us and he will love us and he will forgive us. I say it's the people that you love who can hurt you the most. And if that's true, it's no more present than in the story presented to us in Hosea. In our own lives, an ever-increasing scale can be drawn of the potential pain that can possibly be inflicted by someone, from the casual neglect of a stranger that doesn't hardly register on the scale at all, to the ache of a parent-child tension, or most pointedly in the betrayal of an unfaithful spouse. We know what it means to be wronged and hurt. Every one of us in here this morning knows that ache and that pain of being hurt, being betrayed, being disappointed, being deceived. New Testament scholar Craig Keener shares his own Hosea story about the tragic and hurtful betrayal and unfaithfulness he experienced in his first marriage. After giving the brutal details of what that meant to go through the horrific experience of unfaithfulness, he notes and says that it gave him the insight that he otherwise would not have seen. He says this, as believers, we often do not reject the cross. But sometimes even we are unfaithful to God. He desires our intimate trust in Him, and too often we pursue what the world values instead of pursuing God with our whole being. Sometimes we're more like infants than we are mature adults. We call on God when we need Him, but we forget that He passionately loves us and that He wants to have a dynamic, marriage-like relationship with us. And sometimes even in pursuing all our religious activities, we forget what matters most. And as a result, we fail to love him in return and to love other people the way that he does. And here's the truth this morning. Even in the midst of our brokenness, and I would say perhaps especially in the midst of our brokenness, God's faithful love is present in our lives. The God with the broken heart, 
whose love is everlasting, pursued us all the way to the cross. And, and if we were to take Hosea's story and we were to transport it and transplant it into the New Testament and capture the major themes of Hosea, here's exactly what it would sound like. Consider the words of Paul in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 Verses 3 through 8 tell us this, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us, and he chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided, listen to this phrase, in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ, and this is what he wanted to do. And it gave him great pleasure. And so we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom, and all understanding. And I want you to notice some key words in verses 7 and 8. They are the phrases and the words he, that he is so rich in kindness. That he has showered his kindness on us. And to me this certainly sounds like the story that will be told over the next several chapters in Hosea that we will be looking at over the next few weeks. It's love poured out on us, lavished on us, extravagant, plentiful, over-the-top, boundless love. God's forgiveness is almost too much to take in. It's, it's ridiculous in its amount. It's like one person living in a 50-room mansion. That's like the grace and the forgiveness God has poured out on us, only infinitely more. So how and why is God's grace and God's forgiveness so knock your socked off amazing? God's grace is so incomprehensible for three primary reasons that I quickly want to highlight for you this morning. Grace is so great because those who are in Christ are, first of all, fully forgiven. In Christ, we are fully forgiven. In Romans 8, 1, it tells us this, so now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. What, what does that mean? It means that you have no sin past, present, or future that has more power than the cross. Our salvation is not just a past event, but Christ still continues the salvation effect into today and and, and fully forgives us. He didn't just conquer sin once. He conquered it for all time. All your past regrets. All your mess-ups. All your hang-ups. He paid it all fully. He also forgives freely. In Christ, we are freely forgiven. You can't exhaust it, and you can't earn it. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. 
Salvation is not a reward for the good things that we have done, so none of us can boast about it. Guys, God doesn't love you because of what you've done. God loves you in spite of, in spite of what you've done. That's the power of forgiveness. That's the power of the message that we will hear in Hosea. It's the power of the message that we hear all through Scripture. God doesn't love you because of what you are. God loves you in spite of what you are. And finally, for this morning, God forgives forever. In Christ, we are forever forgiven. Guys, God never regrets saving you. You haven't surprised him with your sin. You won't surprise him with your sin. You cannot surprise him with your sin. Every time we sin does not mean that Jesus says, See, Father, I told you he would do this, and that's exactly why I didn't want to go to the cross. I regret ever doing it. John 10, 18 gives us these words. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. For I have the authority to lay it down when I want to and also to take it up again. Guys, God, God forgives forever. God's faithfulness is greater than our unfaithfulness. The depth of our sin is dwarfed by the depth of God's love. When we forsake God, God stays faithful and he offers forgiveness. What, what does all of this mean? It means that God can rescue it means that God can save. And it means for those of us who are in Christ, you do not disgust him. Well, I mean, some of you might say, you, you don't know what I struggle with and how disgusting it is. I, I know Jesus would say that he paid the bill in full, that he paid freely, that he paid forever. So what you're saying is nonsense. If there are barriers between you and God, you've put them up. He has not put them up. If there are barriers between you and God, you have built them. He most certainly has not. In fact, he has provided the wrecking ball to knock that barrier down. That's the God Hosea will show us. And his love is boundless.